are as we're listening, just let the sounds wash over you like a cleansing meditation. for the soul. I'd be fine if we just listened to that all night. I think that should be the Dharma talk. <laughs> if I go on too long, you can just, like, you know, time out, get the music back on. <laughs> hmm. Seems like, I know for myself, and I know it's true for many people I work with these days, that... Um, Soothing, balming waters for the soul is very important. These are not necessarily easy times to be awake. Not easy times to be conscious and to have one's eyes and ears and one's heart open. And especially um, politically, socially, um, these are hard times. You know, you're here because you uh, practitioners of meditation, of the Dharma. The Dharma means truth, the law, the way things are. Right? And we're living in times where the truth is not quite uh, esteemed as it used to be. There's a lot of lies, there's a lot of deceit. And there's a lot of pain. And there's a lot of pain being surfaced, um, especially in the last couple of weeks with the Senate hearings, with the Supreme Court confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, of the hearings with Dr. Blasey Ford, and, um, and just the all the other things that are going on that that's a, an expression of. And so I wanted to speak a little to that and how we, you know, how these practices and these teachings speak to that to some degree and how these teachings and practices can support both holding that, understanding that, meeting that, working with what gets uh, triggered or challenged inside whatever political spectrum you have which part of the political spectrum you're on and if I get time I'll touch on some different pieces around how we hold what's happening 
and that supports the whole what's happening with mindfulness, uh, resilience, equanimity, compassion, and perspective. So I wanted to start with a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh, who is no stranger to um, suffering, having grown up uh, as a young man and as a young monk uh, during the Vietnam War and witnessed tremendous atrocity and brutality and bloodshed and whatnot. And um, I forget exactly where and when he wrote this poem, but I think it, it's, it's one of those poems that speaks to um, the depth of understanding that one can bring to what is a polarized situation and how to have a non-polarized or a non-dual understanding where we see that we're not separate from any of it. We see that we're not separate from any side of it. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply, I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to hope and to fear. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the fly metamorphosing on the surfaces of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate, and I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up, so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. That's a deep poem. That's a deep way of, that's a deep view. That's a non-dual view of how to hold the beauty and the atrocity, the love and the hate, the peace and the violence, that we're not separate from it. As much as we might distance, as much as we might polarize, as much as we might align with something, nothing separate from us. So I was thinking about that poem in the context of the um, the hearings last week, watching very painful uh, hearings um, that my friend commented felt like a witch hunt, or the witch trials from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. A woman's being accused or not listened to or um, questioned and interrogated. 
And it was very painful to watch, I know, for many, many people. Painful to see a woman incredibly vulnerable, incredibly courageous, incredibly brave to speak to what was an appalling uh, violation and assault and rape and to have to go through the kind of trials that she's had to go through publicly, personally, um, being threatened with death threats and whatnot. And very painful for those who've been uh, affected by sexual assault, which, you know, according to statistics, is astonishingly high, and I think the statistics are low compared to the reality. One in three women, at least reported, victims of sexual assault. One in five women, uh, victims of rape. One in six men, victims of some kind of sexual assault. But I think the numbers are much higher than that. And so watching that trial has been a surfacing of, of deep wounds, personal, collective. Um, the, I know the, the rape crisis centers have had an unprecedented amount of uh, callers uh, since this has been going on. Um, surfacing wounds, but also validating uh, people's experience and validating people's, uh, uh, you know, encouraging people to step up and to speak truth. And I think what was one of the things that was so painful for so many, because one of the uh, initial responses when people uh, speak of their sexual assault is that they're accused of lying, or their, their, their experience is denied in some way or dismissed, um, which of course also leads to a lot of self-doubt in the victim. So not easy things to hold, right? Am I am I am I right here in thinking this? I'm, yeah, and the the pain is is like this wound keeps getting opened and and opened and resurfaced. Part of a bigger movement, you know, is part of the Me Too movement, right? Bringing to light history, recent history of. Sexual abuse, sexual power, disabuse of power, sexual misconduct, violation, um, particularly since the Harvey Weinstein and other that bringing to, uh, you could say, feels like a turning point in actually calling out history, centuries of abuse, of institutional sexism and a violation. So I wanted just, just to partly to speak to this in the, in the context of our practice, but also taking it out of the, the microcosm of that particular situation and also um, just to the, the broader picture of um, violence, assault, and the ways that we harm each other. Right? And in, in Buddhist teachings, there's a, there's a reason why the Buddha spoke about ethics. He spoke about conduct. He spoke about non-harming. And I doubt, I don't know, if assault and sexual assault was any less rare then than it is now. But he suggested a framework for how to live wisely without harming, that the expression of an awakened life 
when we live with understanding of our interconnectedness, the fruit of that is that we don't harm. Or as an Achananalio, who was a monk who was teaching here recently uh, for the teachers, he gave us he was teaching on a teacher retreat. He was talking about how for the for the enlightened mind, it's impossible to violate. It's impossible to harm because of that. It just doesn't arise in the awakened heart. And so, out of that that principle of not harming, of respecting life caring for life, validating life, then the other, the other um, precepts or guidelines are a natural expression. To not take anything that hasn't been freely given, including someone's body, including someone's sexuality. To refrain from harming sexually is the third guideline to being mindful of one's sexual energy and to respectfully engage with another person with consent, non-harming, acting out of kindness, out of connection. And the fourth precept to uh, refrain from harming anyone through false speech, through lying, through harsh speech. And the fifth being to refrain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness, lack of awareness that cause more likely to cause harm. And you're all from, most of you are familiar with these guidelines. Right? And we might say them ritualistically as part of our practice. We might say them at the beginning of a retreat or practice period. But to actually live them, to really live them in one's life, impeccably, that's work. It's practice. It takes a lot of awareness. It takes a lot of honesty. It takes a lot of practice. And the Buddha spoke about this idea of the bliss of blamelessness, that one can live blamelessly while listening to some groovy tunes. <laughs> No worries. Appreciate the light relief. <laughs> Drowning in heaviness over here. <laughs> um, you know, to actually live those, right? Can, can we go to bed every night and say, yeah, I'm, I'm abiding in the bliss of blamelessness. I acted without harming anybody in any way. I was impeccable with my speech. I was impeccable with my sexuality. I was impeccable with not taking anything from anyone, any being, attention, acclaim, energy, whatever it is that we might take and and offered. Time. And I think about the accusations brought against Kavanaugh and there was a violation of each of one of those precepts. Not harming, not taking that which wasn't freely given, harming sexually, uh, speaking untruths and, and using intoxicants that cause heedlessness, that cause that kind of, that kind of suffering. I've been tracking uh, the, the current election cycle in, in um, Brazil, which is, um, I find, particularly distressing. There's a, um, a candidate who looks like he's going to win, Bolsonaro, not sure if I pronounced his name correctly, um, who, what's uh, the word... Um, looks to Trump as a role model and um, is very uh, somewhat expressive and, and vulgar in speech and, uh, and and so there's a similar this isn't you know 
to take it out from a US-centric perspective. This is not just what's happening here. There's also, in the same way that tribalism and nationalism has been growing around the world and with the the Syrian refugee crisis and the putting up of borders and and, and, um, backlash against uh, certain liberal values, LGBTQ uh, values or uh, anti-immigrants. There's a whole wave of this othering, this separation, this duality, this divisioning that's very painful to witness. It's painful to hold. Maybe I was just talking to a friend. He was at a wedding in Baltimore this weekend and it was a very big extended family and some of the family were friends and grew up with Kavanaugh and some of the friends grew up with Dr. Ford and some of them are friends with both. And there was one rule at the wedding which was not to talk about the case. Um, so it's complicated and not. So, it feels like there's a, um, a slow, painful waking up of various things culturally, including se- in our, our understanding of sexuality and sexual oppression and the institutionalization of that. And I can't help but relate it to the broader picture of how we relate to the earth. And what's happening to the earth and the desecration of the earth and what could be called a rape of the earth feels like a similar historical root of our disconnection from our bodies, disconnection from land, Disconnection from sexuality, disconnection from honoring the feminine, honoring the earth. And because I'm an environmentalist and nature lover and most of my work is in nature, I couldn't help uh, being aware of the implications of that with this particular uh, nomination that felt very uh, politically uh, motivated. And so I was reading some statistics recently. Um, An Earth Justice analysis found that on EPA-related cases, Justice Kavanaugh has cited 89% of the time with deregulation. Voted 96% of the time against wildlife. And um, et cetera, et cetera. It feels not separate violation of women, of the feminine, of the earth, not disconnected. And I don't know how many people came across this news piece today of a new uh, piece of research um, from the UN on climate change and uh, stressing that we have about 12 years before, until 2040 uh, and the potential of reaching uh, temperatures rising 2.7 degrees which would cause a massive amount of global upheaval and um, uh, destruction hard to hear hard to bear I don't want to be a doom and gloom merchant (laughs) which I sound like I am right now Um, but this also what's happening these are the times we're living in we're living in these very sort of what feel like precipice times and I know for many of us, we would like our institutions and our governments and our elected officials to actually be responding to the crisis at hand. Which most of them are not. And so we watch and we listen to these reports, these climactic reports, environmental reports, and we wonder why people are asleep at the wheel. Why we see, keep responding to Uh, corporate interests only, not the interests of the planet. So, 
how do we respond to this as, as Dharma practitioners, as meditators, as people who care about life and the earth and people and each other? What, what's the response? How do you hold it? I'm, 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 I'm curious. Um, and this has really been a, a, a very um, alive time in, in my own practice you know, of asking deeply, how do these teachings of wisdom, of compassion, of awareness, non-duality, how do they help us support living alive and awake at this time? It's, it's easier to go to sleep. It's easier to numb out, seemingly. And most people do, because it's actually painful to stay conscious. It's painful to read the news. It's painful for many of us to watch this current president. It's painful to watch the way politicians relate to each other and ignore the issues at hand. And easy to, easy to get into demonization. So Joanna Macy, who's a, an elder that I love and respect a lot around these themes, and I talk about her when I'm talking about these themes, um, she was with a, t- a Tibetan teacher once, and she said, "How do we? How do we? How do we stay present? How do we deal with with the crisis of our times?" And this was probably thirty years ago, when probably didn't seem quite as much of a crisis, but maybe it always seems like a crisis. And he said he and he talked about the Shambhala prophecy. It's an age-old Tibetan prophecy. Um, that there would come a time when Shambhala warriors um, arise and um, they would be equipped with two weapons to deal with uh, the oncoming crisis. And the two weapons were the weapon of wisdom, awareness, and the wisdom of compassion. And that those two weapons, the integration of those qualities, are what's necessary to, to meet the coming crisis. So, and that's what we practice here. We practice the cultivation of mindfulness, of awareness, which in this case, and I think, um, I feel it's very much in relationship to the ecological crisis, is it's a practice of bearing witness. It's a practice of not turning our attention away. It's, it's feeling the pain of the world. It's not uh, going into denial or escapism. And out of that awareness comes clarity, comes understanding. And out of that understanding comes wise action, compassionate action. I was uh, uh, I was biking with my family this weekend, and um, one of our chains broke on our bikes, and we wheeled into this bike store in um, Chrissy Fields. And uh, this woman was wearing a T-shirt at the checkout. And it said, um, black and white letters, don't tell me what to wear. Don't tell me what to wear. Tell your friends not to rape. I thought, that's a really powerful statement. And very apropos of this time. And I said, oh, I really like your T-shirt. And she said, oh, I'm surprised. Most men don't like it. And they look away or they do something. And I said, how long have you been wearing that t-shirt? She said, oh, about 10 years. It's not like this is a new issue. And um, I said, has any man ever complimented you? And she said, no, never. I said, well, I like your t-shirt. clear seeing, right? What's the real issue here? I think of those kids in Florida and I think about, you know, so I always frame the practice of mindfulness as a support for clarity, for understanding, for insight, for wisdom, and out of that wisdom, wise action. And there's a lot of action happening, but not necessarily wise if we don't have the wisdom and awareness and clarity. And um, I think I was thinking about this talk and 
how people respond to the, the, the different crises that we're going through. And I think about the, the teenagers from the Florida school shooting and how engaged and active they became after they lost, I forget how many it was in their school, 12, 15 children shot senselessly and violently and how they became this huge movement for anti-gun violence. And it was just a powerful expression of what can happen when there's both tremendous pain and also clarity and wisdom and then, and then engaged action. It's a beautiful expression. So, um, Suzuki Roshi uh, sp- spoke uh, some words that I think are really apropos that speak to where we are and how our practice relates to it. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation till there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love and you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So how do we sit with that kind of steadiness? You know, what was remarkable about watching the, the Senate judiciary hearings was watching the presence of Dr. Blasey Ford, right? I can't imagine a more stressful scenario being both trauma victim, traumatized, and having to deal with a lot of very angry, white, male, older uh, congressmen, mostly, and some congresswomen, um, and on national TV, and, you know, and the presence and dignity and composure and courage that she had was, I thought, remarkable expression of, I'm not sure what kind of practice she has to do that and what kind of anti-anxiety meds she takes to do that. <laughs> but something works. You know, I know what kind of tea she's drinking. You know, I think about the same for when Obama was president and the amount of vitriol and hatred and, and, and racism he had to endure as an African-American man and how composed and uh, dignified he was in the face of so much um, so much racism. So mindfulness partly supports this cultivation of equanimity, this ability to stay steady in the midst of things. And I'm, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm always curious as I keep reading the news every day, and I try not to read too much because that doesn't help equanimity. <laughs> it usually helps one get, you know, angry or frustrated or, or despairing. Um, but to see how one's holding that. And so the, the, the initial piece of equanimity is acknowledging the truth of what is. Acknowledge, however much we like it, hate it, want it, don't want it, it is how it is. Right? Regardless of what happens in the midterms, politics is going to be as it is. It's going to be infuriating and frustrating as it is. People treat each other horribly and disrespectfully and violently and that's how it is. As in, that's the truth of, of, of our experience. That's the truth of how people treat, can treat each other. It's not to say that we, we accept it. It's not to say that we're passive to it. It's not to say that we you know, support it. But equanimity is first acknowledging this is what humans do. This is what we do to each other. It's like this. It's painful, it's harsh, it's brutal. It's also beautiful and loving. And it's like this. And so, um, I was speaking to some friends, my neighbors actually, who um, just came off a retreat with um, 
uh, Jennifer Wellwood, who's a te- local teacher, and it reminded me of a poem that she wrote. Um, and it's a poem about stop being so surprised it's as bad as it is. <laughs> Why are we surprised? <laughs> it's human nature. I mean, so it's cl- at times it's worse than others, right? Clearly. And we look back in history and there's definitely been way worse than others. Um, but, but why are we surprised? But we are surprised. We do get surprised. So this poem sort of in, in uh, speaking to that. It's called The Darkini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we haven't truly noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings, but please let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken a secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion precise. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the ride. Can we give ourselves to it? Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adults the true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. But that's, she's not saying don't walk away. She's not saying don't give up. She's saying, can we face the truth here? Not pretty, not fun, not easy. In our own experience, in our own wounding and pain, in the pain in society, the pain in the world, And the, the equanimity and the, the teachings point about is not a passive equanimity. It's not an indifference. It's engaged, it's connected, and it's meeting the truth of what is. And the third quality that's helpful is compassion. Right? If there's one fruit of what listening to the pain of Dr. Ford and her representing the millions of other people who are suffering from the pain of sexual violence and assault, can, we, can that touch our hearts that, and so it evokes compassion, evokes a tenderness, a caring, a warmth, uh, a suffering with, holding the pain of the many people, including ourselves who've been suffered from some kind of sexual harm. Which statistically would be a lot of people in this room. When I'm teaching retreats, there's a significant amount of people who are on retreat dealing with this kind of wounding. It's part of the healing that comes through the practice. And can we let that, that, that the heart, the tenderness, move us to act? Because compassion is a movement. It doesn't just stay passive. It's a movement to want to do something, to help, to care, to relieve, to uh, comfort something. And then to reflect for yourself about what allows you to stay resilient. How do you stay present and open when times are hard? When there's a lot of suffering? What keeps you balanced? It doesn't help to drown. But it's not useful to also check out. How do we stay present here? How do we stay resourced? You know, in the trauma field, the, one of the key tools for working with trauma is, is staying resourced, right? which, is, which actually is mostly attending to that which isn't the trauma. 
attending to that which isn't the pain, attending to that which isn't triggering, not to keep rubbing one's nose in it if one can. So what else is happening aside from the wounding and the pain and the trauma? Right? And there's a lot of life that's happening. When, when one's in a trauma cycle, it's hard to see that. You need support, you need help. But uh, in these times, how do you stay resourced? As you know, as I talk about a lot, for me it's going outside. Appreciating uh, the natural world here that's still alive and thriving. I was taking a walk this Sunday, this Sunday, last Sunday. I was down at Rodeo Beach. It's the last beach in Southern Marin. And uh, I was watching the surfers, a lot of surfers in the break there. And all of a sudden, these three dolphins just pop up right out of the the water, bottlenose dolphins. And they started surfing the waves and playing with the surfers. And it was just this completely idyllic, dreamy moment. Like, that's resourcing, right? Like, in that moment, right, Washington, D.C. did not exist, right? The hearings did not exist. Trump did not exist. Whatever nemesis I have did not exist. It was just, oh, pure delight. All right, joy, beautiful. Dolphins are still jumping. Waves are still breaking. The pelicans are still coming in their squadrons. And I was watching the, the, one of the wings, the angels, the what? Blue angels, right? And, um, and I find the, the pelicans way more interesting. Like just the, the way the pelicans come in their flocks and they come down symmetrically and they hover above the wave. Like that's way more interesting than a bunch of combustion engines flying around making noise. It's kind of fun, but it's, you know, <laughs> for a little while and it gets annoying. <laughs> So what helps balance you? What helps you stay grounded? Humor, really good. You know, my main news source is people like Stephen Colbert or um, The Daily Show or any other political pundit who can laugh at this circus we're in. And we can see the humor takes the sting out of it, takes, makes it a little less burdensome. In the teachings, the, the Buddha used this phrase, that to guard the gates of the senses. Right? To, guard, to guard how we're stimulating ourselves. Right? And so to notice, like a lot of us have become news junkies. Right? We're just plugged into you know, all these different news sources, tweets and you know, whatever, wherever you get your news. And it's flooding and inundating and not so helpful. We don't need to hear it all day. We might need to stay informed, but if it's, make, if it's, if it's causing that depression or weighted you know, heaviness, not so helpful. Right? So to be mindful of how... You know, so Thich Nhat Hanh talks about media and news as an intoxicant. To be mindful of what we're intoxicating our bodies with. Right? And if that causes you to go numb and shut down, it's an intoxicant. It's just it's no different than drinking. So to be mindful of what you take in, how much you take in, limit it. Take a news fast if you need to. Times. Another support for resilience is love. Right? The love the heart can hold a lot of dualities and polarities that the mind cannot hold at all. A heart can hold the capacity of loving people we have a lot of enmity for. And then perspective taking. So it's important that we're mindful of our perspective. I was talking to some friends today and they just had taken a walk today or yesterday in uh, Tennessee Valley. And they said there was these clouds of butterflies, thousands and thousands of golden butterflies just kind of almost clouding out the hills. I'd never heard of that. Has anybody seen them? These clouds of butterflies? 
They weren't, they weren't monarchs, but the same color as monarchs. And I thought, oh, perspective, right? Different perspective, right? Cycles, seasons, migration patterns, bigger picture. Right? One way to get perspective. Deep time. I take a lot of refuge in deep time. Deep time is understanding that this human span, but especially recent uh, history of, of, of human society is a blink of a speck of a moat of dust in the vast ocean of sand. Right? This time is just a speck, a moment in biological evolutionary history. And we will come and go as, as an untold amount of species have come and gone. And it helps me not to take us too seriously. That doesn't mean to say we don't care, is what uh, T.S. Eliot said, teach me how to care and not to care. Teach me how to love and to let go. Teach me how to care but not be so fixated or demanding or grasping about how I care. Or I think about all the ways that that humans, uh, past and present, have done amazing things to combat things like slavery, things like ozone hole depletion, things like you know the loss of species and creating endangered species act and protecting vast amount of species. Like we have this tremendous capacity, so I'm also trying to remember the goodness and the capacity of people just to love, to take care of each other, to protect and steward and steward the land. <coughs> whenever I get bleak about what I read about climate I have this book on my coffee table it's going to sit there probably for the next 50 years if I live that long which is probably unlikely Um, it's it's, uh, Paul Hawkins book called Drawing Down a hundred research I'm losing a lot of people this talk must be really boring or triggering or something bye um Might go on over? No. Okay. All right. It's not bedtime yet. Um, I thought this talk would be popular. Um, So it's a hundred researched, provable, already available technological solutions. The top hundred solutions that would uh, draw down the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Already proven. Already happening. Just need to be scaled massively. And I take refuge in that, that we don't, you know, it looks bleak, but we don't know what may happen as the proverbial shit hitting the fan, how that may galvanize. Because I think at some point we will wake up and we will throw politicians out of office who don't wake up to the crisis. I think that's going to happen. It's not happening now because it's not in our face enough. Unless your house is flooded on the East Coast or in Houston or your house is burned in the fires in Sonoma or British Columbia or um, your islands are disappearing or your food is disappearing or your fish are disappearing or whatever. I take refuge in the saying of the Buddha, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Two years shall pass. Maybe six years will pass. This too will pass. It will all pass. And eventually we'll pass. Right? I take refuge. Right? This too will pass. This suffering, this wound, this pain will pass. This trauma will pass. It won't always be like this. And this is true. Nothing endures. And then the last, I'll just close with this last phrase of the Buddha's, you know, where he said and repeated often, Hatred never ceases by hatred alone. Only by love does hate, hate. Only by love does hate. Only by love does hate cease. 
hatred does not cease by hatred, only by love does hatred cease. Only by love does hatred cease, right? Sorry, I'm getting tired. <laughs> you know, and it's these times it can trigger a lot of hatred. Right? Anybody here feel for hatred every time every now and then? Right. Yeah. It it you know, I've had friends talking about you know, they've never felt so much vengeance before and desire to inflict harm on people who are doing a lot of harm. And they're kind of shocked by their own uh, hatred or vengeance. But that happens. We just need to be mindful not to act it out, but to feel it. Feel the fury. It's energy. And to remember, hatred does not cease by hatred alone. Only by love does hatred cease. So we have time for a couple of comments, questions. Anybody like to um, share, speak to where you are? Questions about what's here? Is there anybody who's going to run the microphones? Jim? And the other Jim. I thought that was another Jim. At the front? So you said a lot of great things, and I really um, really love them. I'm having a hard time, though, with the concept of it will pass. Mm. Um, it feels passive. Mm. And for me, I'm feeling that this is actually an awakening mm-hmm. that's happening with the divine feminism actually arising, mm-hmm. whether it's from the earth and coming into the women, but I, I see something that's very powerful. And I agree with compassion and wisdom. I agree with everything you said. Um, I think about connection, more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that what's missing for women are male allies mm. um, who are there as in their masculine, in their, in their true divine masculine, as protectors doing the sacred, correct thing of, of making the world safe. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like compassion and wisdom is being met with like talking to toddlers. Is what? Like talking to toddlers. It feels like when, when Blasey was speaking, she was amazing, but everyone was acting like little kids in their response to that. Mm-hmm. They weren't rational and it feels like there's a disconnect of the masculine not understanding or or feeling the true ability of the of the feminine and taking that in and being able to rest in that and relax in that and and rise to that and so i i agree that not to be um, you know, to take up war against someone. But I also feel like it needs to be almost the opposite of taking up more love, more leaning in to create more connection. And I think it's a really hard task. And that's what's like really causing me to hit my head against the wall a lot because it may not be people in the millennial age. Well, actually it may be because it feels like there's a lot of disconnection going on in this world more and more with everything that's here. So the challenge is like, how do we reconnect? And meditation as a practice is great. It can also only be a silo sometimes. Mm -hmm. And how do we expand that out into the greater consciousness of getting everyone wired together? Big task. Mm -hmm. That's where I get lost. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It's, I don't think there's an easy answer. I was just listening to um, a friend of mine talk about um, uh, Kristen Neff, who, who, who kind of pioneered the work around self-compassion, as her new book is Fierce Compassion. And I think it's a very apropos 
book to be written in these times of how do we take these practices, like hot practices, and actually engage in a very active way, as you're saying, including men stepping up and being allies, as an example, or educating uh, around privilege and, and, uh, and consciousness. Um, so... Um, And as, you know, I, I think there's always, you know, Buddhism historically has not been socially engaged that much, a little more in the last century, I would say. But, and so we have to look honestly at ourselves and our own practice and where these practices lead us towards um, anesthetizing and where they actually... In, encourage us to, to, to face the truth and, and act on that in some way. But that's a, you know, also an individual responsibility. Um, and, and I think you speak to this piece about not being alone. You know, whatever that way that we engage through connection, through community is essential. A lot of this pain and wounding is also very isolating. Other comments, questions, please. Um, it feels a little bit to me that the outside is a reflection of the inside, and there's really nothing going on out there that doesn't go on inside here. Of course. And it's kind of a challenge to practice and to get things peaceful here. And maybe that does more in the world than is immediately apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think I think we're we're often in that dialectic with practice. Of course, just, just like Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, which is why I read it. That what's happening out there, whether it's in the judiciary committee or on the streets or wherever, is happening in our own heart, our own the ways that we assault ourselves, the ways that we overrule or ignore or debase or harm ourselves and others, right? It's us, It's the same mind. It's the same forces. And yeah, for sure, doing that inner work is essential. And I think it has to be, because they're not separate, and it also has to find some manifestation expression externally. I mean, it can't help not impact in some way at least one's behavior, one's actions, one's words. And I think um, the more that we can find ways to bring that in a more active way externally, I think that's going to be helpful. Because we also do influence each other and we do need to, need to but there's, a, there's, an, there's an imperative, it feels like at this time, to come out of our solitary practice. So, but yes, it's all that reflection and it's all mind. And our mind is is all of it, beautiful and hor- and horrific. Alrighty, so let's just take a moment to sit together. Close with a poem from poet Rashani. Beautiful poet, teacher. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So may we dedicate our practice for particularly those who have been the victims of assault, sexual assault and harm. May they find solace, healing, and true well-being. May all beings everywhere 
be free of suffering. May all beings everywhere be free. Thank you for your presence. I um, hope these words were helpful and my forgiveness if they uh, were stirring in a way that wasn't so helpful. Um, And I try to do my best in speaking to this subject, which I'm by no means an authority, but I feel like it's important that particularly as men we speak to this. Uh, And so thank you for your patience.